Now again, let's turn into the Word of God and look at uh, what he has to say to us this morning. And I'd like to read first in Joshua chapter 24. It's an honor to be here and to share with these dear brethren. And it's really a thrill. We were talking about this last evening. It is a thrill to see how many dear young people there are here. We are absolutely delighted to see you all. This is a verse taken out of Joshua's last words to Israel. Verse 14, he says of Joshua 24:14, Now therefore fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in truth. And put away the gods which your father served on the other side of the flood and in Egypt and serve ye the Lord. And if it seem evil unto you to serve the Lord, choose you this day whom you will serve. Whether the gods which your fathers served that were on the other side of the flood, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And the people answered and said, God forbid that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. Now, the Lord will bless the reading of his word. We are going to look at a number of scriptures, all in the Old Testament, that have the same little phrase that came alive to me in reading this section just about a month ago. This little phrase, but as for me and my house... We will serve the Lord. I would imagine that that's a verse that's on the texts in on the walls of many Christians' homes. Diane and I have it as you walk in the front door. And I certainly pray that until the Lord returns, our home is that kind of a home. But my attention was struck by this little four-word phrase. But as for me. And I found in my study that it's seven times in the Old Testament. And my first thought was, well, this might just be a King James message. But it's the same four words used seven times in the New American Standard. And it's five out of seven in the English Standard Version. So you will leave this weekend remembering the messages of these dear brethren who are excellent Bible teachers and great students of Scripture. You may not remember a single thing I say. That's okay. But I implore you to remember these four words. But as for me. The little word but is a conjunction, and it's used to introduce something that is contrasting to what has already been stated. It's a turnaround word. Um, One of the great studies of Scripture is the times you read the little phrase, but God. Romans 5, for when we were yet without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. Scarcely for a righteous man would one die. Perhaps for a good man some might even dare to die. But God, who is rich in mercy for his great love, wherewith he loved us. Ephesians 2, you were dead in trespasses and sins 
in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, and so on. Verse 4, But God, who is rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, turn around words. The word but we've all used. It's used in, in, in connection with children to their parents. We've heard about that. Please make me a cup of coffee. But dad, I asked you to make me a cup of coffee. Students use it to their instructors. I remember once in medical school, I, in a practical anatomy exam, I gave the professor exactly word for word what he wanted, and he failed me. To this day, I still don't know. And I said to him, but sir, and that was as far as I got. Um, drivers use it to traffic policemen who stop them. But officer. Husbands use it to wives. That doesn't work so well. Sinners use it to the claims of the gospel. That's why they're not saved. And Christians use it to the claims of the Lord Jesus. So it's a turnaround word, and it describes a different purpose, a different aim, a different direction. And we will consider it today in its use by serious, devoted Christians to the claims and the calls of a Savior to turn from a dying world. Now, the next three words are as for me. And using this phrase at the beginning of a statement would only make sense if it is a follow-up to something that has gone before, an alternative, uh, a response that's different, to mark a contrast. And that's what we've heard in Joshua's words. So as for me is the personal importance for you and for me. So it simply means this. Forget your friends, maybe even those sitting right beside you. Forget the crowd. Minimize the majority. This is just between you and the Lord. Now, I don't mean this to be taken as a phrase um, to describe selfishness. It is not. It's the greatest curse of today. Men shall be lovers of themselves. 1 Timothy 3. It's not self-centeredness. It's not normal or negative self-will. It is actually, the but is a turn away, that's separation, what we have already heard. And as for me is a turn toward all the calls and claims of my Savior. So what I'd like to impress upon you, we're going to look at these all quickly. And those of you who love to take notes, you'll be able to write down the scriptures and then work on these in your own time. But these are scriptural guidelines to help you take a stand for your Savior in a world that is saturated with wickedness. My brother has already been saying that you are bombarded with the spirit of error everywhere you turn. And in this book, we have the spirit of truth. And it is so good for especially young people in high school and in university to very simply ask about everything. Is this the spirit of error or is this the spirit of truth?
So here we have a call to devotion, to dedication. This is Joshua challenging the people of Israel to take a stand against their past history of disobedience. They disobeyed Israel over and over again after multiple acts of blessing that he performed for them. His kindnesses, Joshua recounts them all, and these were his last words to the people. And in spite of everything that God had done to them and for them and with them, they were still characterized by defiance and disobedience and even idolatry. It's amazing that these people that had God directly interact with them, they were still worshiping other gods. And I would say this, that none of us here are any different from them. We have the same human natures, the same tendencies. So we have heard from a brother Phil that the Lord definitely has a plan and a purpose for your life. But for that purpose to be fulfilled depends very, very much upon how many times and in how many circumstances you are willing to take a stand and to say, but as for me. One has said, it doesn't matter if you quote the Bible, if you live like you've never opened it. And I just, you don't have to turn to it, but I want to read you a word from Deuteronomy. Um, This is the word of the Lord to Israel. Only take heed to yourself and keep your soul diligently, lest thou forget the things which thine eyes have seen, unless they depart from thy heart all the days of thy life. But teach them to thy sons and to thy sons' sons. God commanded Israel to keep his word prominently displayed, to engrave it on the posts of their doors and in their homes, and even to wear it to remind them constantly of his call to them. Now, what about this phrase as far as a couple putting it in their home? As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Let me just say very, very tenderly that this is not something that's going to happen automatically after you get married. This has to be something that has already occurred in the heart and the life and the soul of a young man who is brought together with a young woman whose heart and whose soul and whose mind has been directed by the Lord to choose and to say, but as for me, I will serve the Lord. Our brother Phil has already been tenderly talking about lordship. And the Lord Jesus in Luke chapter 7 once said to his disciples, Why do you even call me Lord if you're not willing to obey the things I say? And I read a quote from somebody that shocked me the first time I read it. I'll just pass it on. Don't insult him by calling him Savior if you're not willing to own him as Lord. Strong words. But here we have a call to devotion and dedication to the Lordship of Christ. Now look at Psalm 5. Psalm number 5. So all of these little phrases are basically calls. A call from God or using the words of men to call our hearts. Psalm 5 verse 4. For thou art not a God that hath pleasure in wickedness. Neither shall evil dwell with thee. 
The foolish shall not stand in thy sight. Thou hatest all workers of iniquity. Thou shalt destroy them that speak leasing or falsehood. The Lord will abhor the bloody and deceitful man. But as for me, I will come into thy house in the multitude of thy mercy, and in thy fear will I worship toward thy holy temple or the temple of thy holiness. Here is a call to worship in the house of the Lord. Verse 7, but as for me, I will come into my house. When I read these words, I actually get sad. Because David, a man after God's own heart, and we're studying in our Bible study at home. We've just been through 1 Samuel. We're now into 2nd. And it's just stunning how many times this dear man called and chosen and selected by God. And the Lord Jesus will sit on the throne of David forevermore. This dear man, a man after God's own heart, messed up so many times in his life. Over and over and over again. And God took him to task for his sins. And we know many of them. But deep within David was a yearning to seek after, to think about, to meditate on, to go to the house of the Lord. Now, why is this sad? Well, because there was no house of the Lord for him to go to. In 1 Samuel, you read that the tabernacle was still in place, but God only meant that to be a temporary thing. There was no temple built. And while David longed to go to the temple, the house of God, God did not allow him in the end to build it. It was given to Solomon, his son, because David was a man of war, because he numbered the people and God judged viciously. 70,000 of Israel died because of David's sin. And he was simply never allowed to live to see the temple raised. But it was in his heart. And in contradistinction to the wicked men around him, evil, foolish, lying men, he longed to be in the presence of the Lord. So now applying that to us today as assembly Christians, uh, how is it for you to go to meetings? To be honest, when it comes time to get ready for meeting, how are we? Is it a chore, uh, a nuisance perhaps, time that you'd rather use for yourself? I don't know how it is in, um, in your assembly, but, and I think it's the same in New Jersey as it is in Pennsylvania. But if I figured this out correctly, there are 168 hours in every week. So you add up the hours that you spend at meeting. I did. And um, in Indiana, Pennsylvania, it's four and a half hours out of a 168-hour week. That works out to 2.267%, less than 3% of the week. And I can find an excuse to not be at meeting. I think of what the Lord said when he got up from the floor of the garden in Gethsemane And he found Peter and James and John sound asleep after he had been through his agony. And he said, what? You couldn't watch with me for one hour? Tender. So here is a call to worship. But as for me, I will come into thy house. Some of you may have heard me say this, but there's a website that is actually designed to help 
make you a better assembly Christian. I have never been to it. I have not gone on it, but I'm pretty sure that's what it is. It's called gotomeeting.com. I'm pretty sure that's what it is. So um, what happens when we as assembly Christians go to meeting? Well, if we believe Matthew 18:20, we are there where the Lord is. And we, if we believe that the presence of the Lord is there with the other Christians and we faithfully gather, we are where the Lord is. If I take myself somewhere else to do something else, I am actually literally taking myself away from the presence of God. Now, he will never leave me, but his collective testimony is there at that meeting that moment. And that's where the Lord wants me to be. See, it's one of the great differences between Christendom and being an assembly Christian. Christians in Christendom go to church to get. Assembly Christians go to meetings to give. And that is an enormous difference. Every meeting we can go as priests to give our Lord something. The sisters as well as the brothers. So here is a call to worship. Now the next one is in Psalm 26. And we're going to quickly go through these. And we'll look at verse 9 for connection. Well, let's read verse 8 because that follows what we just read in the prior psalm. David says, Lord, I have loved the habitation of thy house and the place where thine honor dwelleth. Gather not my soul with sinners. Young person, there is a prayer That you could pray every day of your life. Lord, don't let me gather my soul with sinners. Nor my life with bloody men. In whose hands is mischief and their right hand is full of bribes. But as for me, I will walk in mine integrity. Redeem me and be merciful unto me. My foot standeth in an even place. In the congregations will I bless the Lord. Here is a call to separation. This is a call, as expressed in David's words, to be separate from the world around us. Separation is a truth that I don't think is preached enough because I don't think I understand it fully and I don't think that most Christians understand it fully. But God has designed separation for us Not as a punishment, but as a protection. It's as simple as that. God has provided separation for us to protect us from what is outside. In the New Testament, there is the within and the without of every assembly. And without describes the world in which we live. So here is a call to separation. And you all know that 2 Corinthians 6 tells of the six illustrations that touch every life about unequal yokes. And God says, touch not that which is unclean, and I will be a father unto you. So you say, well, I have to come out before he can be a father? Yes, he already is my father. But the father of the prodigal could not be the prodigal's father when he was in the pig pen in the far country. It was only when he came home to the blessings of the Father's house that he could be a father to him. 
So here's a call to separation. As for me, I will walk in mine integrity. The old Southern Baptist preacher Vance Havner said this. He said, if you are a Christian, you are not a citizen of this world trying to get to heaven. You are a citizen of heaven trying to make your way through a dying world. And as we are heading home, living in a world that is corrupt and evil and defiled and polluted and soon to be burned up, this whole call, but as for me, I will walk in integrity apart from the evil around me. That's why James says that one of the purest aspects of devotion to God is to keep myself unspotted from the world. That's a challenge for all of us. This week I saw on YouTube, or uh, I'm sorry, on Facebook, a devotional speaker. You may have seen it. I watched it. His name was Mark Miro. I don't believe he's a Christian, but he was a recovered addict and he was speaking to high school kids. And the little caption was, watch this and grab your Kleenex. And I watched it at lunch sitting uh, at my desk at work. And I had to grab my Kleenex. Um, This is what he said. And I immediately went back and replayed it so I got it right. He said to these young people, he said, you show me your friends and I'll show you your future. You show me your friends and I will show you your future. Because there's a verse in 1 Corinthians 15 that says in the King James Evil communications corrupt good manners. I never understood fully what that meant because I've never had good manners. And there are those here that I've known all my life that would agree with that. But here's what it really means. Don't let anyone deceive you. Associating with evil people will ruin decent people. And I have mentioned this before, that a few years ago, Andrew Usher, whose son uh, David is here today, he asked me to come up to Langstaff, and he said he wanted to do a Bible study with the young kids, the young people, on the subject of friendships. So I said, that's great. So I went to study in the New Testament. And what I found was this. The New Testament says almost nothing about friendships. Almost nothing. What it does say is, don't you know that the friendship of the world is making yourself an enemy of God? But here's what I did find. I found a lot about fellowship. And I believe that the Lord has designed assembly truth and the doctrines of the New Testament that unite us together. He has designed that our friendships be based on our fellowships. So, dear young Christian, check out your friends. And ask yourself before the Lord, how much of what they believe and they live am I in fellowship with? And if you find that it's not a lot, you probably should change your friends. So this is a call to live a separated life. Look at Psalm 35. Psalm 35. And we will look at verse 11. This is again a psalm of David. Psalm 3511. 
False witnesses did rise up. They laid to my charge things that I knew not. They rewarded me evil for good to the spoiling of my soul. But as for me, there's our phrase, when they were sick, my clothing was turned into sackcloth for them. I humbled my soul with fasting, and my prayer returned into my own bosom. I behaved myself as though these false witnesses and evil people were my own friend or brother. I bowed down heavily as one that mourneth for his mother. But in mine adversity, they rejoiced and gathered themselves together. Yea, the abjects gathered themselves together against me, and I knew it not. They did tear me and cease not with hypocritical Mockers in feasts, they gnashed upon me with their teeth. Lord, how long wilt thou look on? Rescue my soul from their destructions, my darling from the lions. Now you will have noticed that these words that David wrote are messianic words. These words were ultimately fulfilled in what the Lord Jesus went through at the hands of his people for you and for me. This may have happened, we're not sure exactly, but it may have happened back in 1 Samuel 30. And you remember that David and his men had left all of their crop, um, livestock and their wives and children behind in a little town called Ziklag. And while they were away at war, the Amalekites came and plundered the town and burned it to the ground and stole all the livestock and kidnapped the wives and the children. And when they got back to a basically a scorched earth town, there was nothing there. And it said that all the people lifted up their voices and wept. And they wept till they could weep no longer. And David wept with them because his wife was gone. And then the people turned upon David and basically said, David, this is all your fault. And they picked up stones to stone him to death. Now, just imagine if you were David in that situation, that in essence you had not done anything wrong. It wasn't David's fault that the Amalekites had not been totally eradicated. That was Saul's fault. But David was about ready to pay the price with his life for this terrible carnage. And then it says, but David encouraged himself greatly in the Lord his God. So David was accused of things for which he was not guilty. Has that ever happened to you? It's happened to me. He was rewarded evil for good. He was bowed down with grief because of their treatment. He was reviled. He was cursed. He was spoken evil of. So what did David do? What was his but as for me? Look again at verse 13. But as for me... When they were sick, I made my clothing sackcloth. I humbled my soul with fasting, and my prayer returned into my own bosom. For them, he behaved to his enemies as if they had been his friend or his brother. This is amazing. He mourned for them when sickness overtook them. He fasted and prayed. He treated them as if they were his family members. 
He wept with those who wept. He pleaded his cause with the Lord. In the end, he realized the Lord was going to be his deliverer and only the Lord. And in the most heavy and grievous of circumstances, he never forgot the importance of praising and trusting the Lord. That is David's, but as for me. And as I was reading this and studying this this past month, I was wondering, could I do that? Do I do that? Am I that way? But you see, David here, as we'll look at the next psalm, David was actually a portrayal of what would happen with the Lord Jesus. The next is Psalm 69, the 69th Psalm. And again, this is Messianic, and we'll read here from verse 8, another Psalm of David. Psalm 69, verse 8, I am become a stranger unto my brethren and an alien unto my mother's children. For the zeal of thine house hath eaten me up, and the reproaches of them that reproach thee are fallen upon me. When I wept and chastened my soul with fasting, that was to my reproach. I made sackcloth also my garment, and I became a fairy tale, a proverb to them. They that sit in the gates speak against me. And I was the song of the drunkards. But as for me, my prayer is unto thee, O Lord. In an acceptable time, O God. In the multitude of thy mercy, hear me in the truth of thy salvation. Verse 13, but as for me. This is a call to trust God in terrible circumstances. And as we read those words, we all thought of the Savior. And we could look at the historical record of how these words were fulfilled in David's life. But I would really like to turn you to the Lord Jesus because he suffered from day one reproach from so many sides. He had a true care for God's house and people. He had a soul that was overburdened with sorrow. I was thinking this week of the scene of the Lord Jesus standing at the grave of his friend Lazarus. And the people were standing, beholding him, as our brother has already been telling us. And what did they see when they looked at the Savior standing by a grave? They saw him weeping. Now, just for a moment, try in your minds to just think of the amazing miracle, the marvel, the unexplainable of the divine, eternal Son of God, Weeping human tears. If any of you can truly understand and explain that, please come talk to me between meetings. It's unfathomable. And here was a Savior whose entire life qualified him, as Isaiah wrote, to be the man of sorrows. The Song of the Drunkards. Brother John last night in ministry was reading from um, the Gospels where the four brothers of the Lord Jesus, half-brothers, were named. And in John chapter 7, we read that even his brothers did not believe in him. And they called Jesus in Nazareth the son of the carpenter or Mary's son. He's never called Joseph's son. 
And there were times later on in his public ministry that the Pharisees looked at Jesus when he was teaching them. And they said, we don't have to listen to you. We have not been born of fornication. It may very well be that one of the earliest songs that the drunkard sang about the Savior was that he was an illegitimate child. I had never thought of that until Mr. Paisley one day sitting at our table mentioned that after we had read this passage. They knew that Joseph wasn't his father. So they hurled that over and over against him. And his four brothers didn't care. Thankfully, they were there at Pentecost. They had gotten saved, and they were part of the new movement of Christianity. But Jesus grew up in a home where every sibling relationship was based on, we don't believe you. And Paul or uh, David talks about sarcasm, and he talks about slander, and he talks about sackcloth. And this proves to us, dear young person, you can tell me this better than maybe I can. Life is not fair. It's just not fair. But David says, but as for me. And he prayed to God, calling upon his timing, his mercy, and his salvation. Write down this scripture to look at on your own. 1 Peter 2, verses 19 to 23. It's perhaps the best reading in your Bibles of how to deal in the workplace or at school if you are treated unfairly or unequally or partially. And it's really a wonderful, encouraging passage because it says God called you to endure suffering because Christ suffered for you. He left you an example so that you could follow in his footsteps. So this is a call from David to continue to trust God in terrible circumstances. And it was proven to us by the Savior, the Lord Jesus, in how he was treated leading up to the cross. The next is just a few pages over to Psalm 73. We're almost done. Psalm 73, verse 1. This is a psalm of Asaph. And he says in verse 1, Truly... God is good to Israel, even to such as are of a clean heart. But as for me, my feet were almost gone. My steps had well nigh slipped. So God was and has been and will be always good to Israel. And he has always been good to those who sincerely, as we have heard from our brother, try to own him as Lord and walk righteously in a Christian life. But honestly, how many of us are like this man Asaph? He looked back and he admitted, we didn't read it, that he was jealous of the wicked, he was foolish in his thinking, he was ignorant in his behavior. And as he looked back over his life, he came up to a screeching halt when he realized the goodness and grace of God. And he said, You know, but as for me, my feet were almost gone. I had almost slipped and fallen. And he thought about the mercy and the grace of God. We may never fully know how close we have come, perhaps, to a fall. 
And God in His mercy has not only promised to keep us from falling, but for righteous men who fall, He is the God who picks them up to get them going again. And Asaph said, But as for me, my feet were almost gone. Dear young Christian, you may be sitting here today, as we have heard, with a lot of baggage in your life. And in moving around a bit and talking to young believers, I have heard and been emailed and texted and letters I have heard with tears some of the things that have happened in the lives of dear young believers, maybe even here today. But what has happened to you in the past, God wants you not to view as a life sentence. He wants you to view it as a life lesson. It does not have to be a sentence. Because we have been set free from the chains of sin. And we have also been set free from the chains of yesterday. God doesn't choose to forget our past. That's human frailty. My wife is telling me that I am forgetting things. But I remember to say that. God doesn't forget things. He chooses to remember them no more. So when you are tempted, when Satan tempts you, as the gospel song says, when Satan tempts you and brings up your past, you point him to the cross and remind him about your future. Because your past is erased. When you think of your past, don't dwell on the negatives. Dwell on the positive grace of God. This man did. He said, as for me, I can remember a time when my feet almost slipped off the edge of the cliff. But God was good. I mean, the end of that chapter, just look down at the end of this. He says in verse 25, Whom have I in heaven but thee? There is none upon earth that I desire beside thee. My flesh and my heart faileth, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For lo... They that are far from thee shall perish. Verse 28. But it is good for me to draw near to God. I have put my trust in the Lord God that I may declare all thy works. Now one last one for just a minute in Daniel chapter 2. So this will be the seventh of these times in Scripture. And I wonder how many times brothers have preached this message. I don't think I've ever heard it. So this can't be original. I mean, this has been here for years. But they sure impressed me as I read through them, and I trust you'll be able to take a little something home. Daniel chapter 2, and let me just set the stage here. Daniel, as a young man, has been called in to stand in front of Nebuchadnezzar, a pagan king, who was a tremendously powerful man, who was over an empire that had no time for Christians, and was entirely pagan-based. That's why they changed the names of the four young Hebrew boys. And then one night, Nebuchadnezzar had a dream. And none of his wise men could help him or answer him or interpret the dream. And um, he calls this young Hebrew boy, Daniel, uh, come into my presence. I need some help. I hear that you can um, interpret dreams. So just put yourself in Daniel's place. Daniel was perhaps still very young, and standing before a king that would, in just in a little while, put them through some real difficult times. So Nebuchadnezzar says, tell me my dream. <clears throat> so verse 27, 
Daniel answered in the presence of the king and said, The secret which the king hath demanded cannot the wise men, the astrologers, the magicians, the soothsayers show unto the king. And I love this next phrase. This is a highlight in the Old Testament. But there is a God in heaven who reveals secrets and makes known to the king Nebuchadnezzar what shall be in the latter days. Thy dream and the visions of thy head upon thy bed. As for thee, O king, thy thoughts came into thy mind upon thy bed. What should come to pass hereafter? And he that revealeth secrets makes known to thee what shall come to pass. Now look what he says. But as for me, this secret is not revealed to me for any wisdom that I have more than any living, but for their sakes that shall make known the interpretation to the king that thou mightest know the thoughts of thy heart. Now, what is this call? This is a call for humility in dealing with others. Daniel said to this king, King, I know what the dream is and I'm going to tell you, but I want you to know that this gift has not been given to me for anything that I am going to use for myself. And basically he said, I want to interpret this dream for your blessing. So here was a young man kidnapped away from his home, his family, his siblings, his country. And just like Joseph kidnapped, he was asked to interpret a dream. And he knew that this man was a pagan king. But little did he know that his three friends would be tested shortly by this same king and thrown into the furnace of fire because they wouldn't bow down to worship him. And he stood humbly and he said, but there is a God in heaven. And then he said, but as for me, this secret is not revealed to me for any wisdom that I have. He used what God gave him in a very humble way to plant the seed in the heart of a pagan king who a few chapters later would get saved. After this, he was promoted. After this, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah were thrown into the furnace. After that, God fulfilled the prophecy of the dream. And Nebuchadnezzar was banished to the fields like a wild animal until he knew the Most High God of heaven. He humbled Nebuchadnezzar and he accepted Daniel's God. So his choice to stand humbly before God ended up in the, conversa- in the conversion of this dear man. One has said as I close, this is Robert Louis Stevenson. He said, sooner or later... We will all sit down to a banquet of consequences. And as we leave this conference and start our lives back again on Monday, we all have choices to make. We all do. They're vitally important because we will one day sit down to a banquet of of consequences. But I would hope that you remember these four little words. But simply means taking a stand different from the ungodly around. And as for me, it means taking a stand for the honor and glory of God. God has called you. We have already heard he saved you. And he wants to sanctify you and have you and I live submissive lives to him. The question was asked, how much of the Bible do you believe? 
And the answer is you believe only how much you obey. So may God help us to be obedient Christians. Brother Phil has already quoted it, and I will close. Trust and obey. There's no other way to be happy in Jesus. Simply trust and obey.